Well, there you are. Happy summer day here in June. This is Alzheimer's Brain Awareness Month, and we're doing author William James. Today we're going to be doing part two of the principles of psychology, but a few things first. I like to tell you different information I've learned along the way. I like to build a different type of podcast each time I do a podcast because I'm doing them live. You hear birds chirping, you hear noises in the background because I don't edit these too much. I try to keep it as real as possible because I'm a real person and we all have flaws, we all have imperfections, but we're all perfectly imperfect. And thank you guys for tuning into the Only You podcast again. And our author this month is William James. And, you know, there are three levels to change. And many of us go through different types of changes in our lives, whether it be um, in the workplace, maybe you started a new job, maybe you got offered a promotion and you got relocated to a different area. Um, there, There is outcome change, process change, and identity change. And most importantly, um, I, I would say the most important thing in changing, like a habit, is to focus not on, you know, pretty much what you want to achieve, but and truly who you want to become. And you got to know the three levels, you know, of change, which, you know, sometimes we have issues or maybe processing issues um maybe we have different types of issues that would affect us on um how quickly we do change you know because a lot of um you know a lot of us don't understand how to pretty much self-diagnose when things are going wrong with us and we don't know when to change we don't know the important thing about changing a habit is to you know focus not on what you want what you want to achieve but you know pretty much truly who you want to become you know and that's a hard thing to do for some people and i I wanted to tell you guys outcome change is the non-negotiable expectation for how changes are handled and and how they are organized inside of your mind and um Sometimes outcome change is easier than process change, you know? And for some that don't know what process change is, it's like pretty much um, you prepare for change, you create a vision, you implement changes, um, you embedded and solidified the changes, and then you do review and analysis. You know, that's a process change. And maybe you struggle with... Um, process change you know maybe you don't realize it and 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 there's there's other things out there you know identity changes like pretty much um, it's a behavior and identity change or like I don't know um, they involve a variety of um, mechanisms related to self-efficiency um, self of purpose and sense of belonging uh, identity change could happen like in a marriage, a divorce, a job loss, you know, changes, you know, your place of living or an illness, you know, that's, that can cause identity change. You know, the lack of abilities to confirm and verify an identity leads to a change in identity standards. And many of us go through that kind of thing and your identity will, um, summit. 
you know, the, the, at the point your identity summits forth, forged in your habits, your every waking action is proof of the person you wish to become. And, you know, you guys, to, to pretty much be your own hero in your story, you must continually go back to the drawing board of your mind, edit your beliefs, and raise your standards, then challenge yourself to become a better version of you for your tomorrow's sake. And I do mean that full-heartedly. And I do want to say that Edward Thine, uh, excuse me, Edward Thorndike actually laid the foundation of our understanding of our habits and how they're formed and the rules that guide our behaviors. And if it wasn't for him, because, I mean, he did, like, studies on, I think, cats and, oh, I don't think, I know he did. He did um, pretty much studies on cats and he actually was a pretty much said that, you know, hey, you know, there are rules that guide our behaviors and in the animal world too. It's not just, oh, because we're human and we can um, remember things quicker than cats can, that it's not true about us, but it is. You know, I do want to say this though. Um, a lot of us suffer from anxiety. A lot of us suffer from like um, fear-based um, relationships. And those are things that we got to get away from is like, you know, um, false evidence appearing real or um, face everything and rise. That's what fear is. But in reality, fear destroys curiosity and playfulness. So, you know, kind of remember that when you see people around you that aren't acting like they used to or, you know, even younger people, you know, people who feel safe and uh, meaningfully connected with others have little reason to ruin their lives by pretty much doing illegal drugs or um, staring numbly like at a television screen. You know, you, they made that show The Twilight Zone for a reason because I believe that <laughs> there was uh, mind control going on out there, you know. Um, you never know, though. I mean, it's like... Uh, Tina Parker said, Acting is not about putting on a character, but discovering the character within you. You are the character. You just have to find it within yourself. An alibi, a very expanded version of yourself, man. And that's the truth. And I, and I love that saying. You know, Tina Parker is a great actress. She, she's uh, well-known out there. And I wanted to tell you, like... As of 2013, you know, neurofeedback, because a lot of this podcast has to do with the learning of neuropathways, neuropathology, neurofeedback, neurochemicals, and all these different types of brain activities that affect you every day and that cause anxiety and cause stress and may cause social disorders that we're unaware of, you know. And I chose William James this month as our author because... He is one of the founding fathers in America of psychology, and I do think that his writings have a lot of um, things we can learn from, you know, and um, he really does put effort into his writing that, like, well, not even his writing, just everything, you know, his, his whole, uh, pretty much every book that he wrote was jam-packed full of things that nobody had ever heard of at the time. And they, they, people still go back and reuse his things, but pretty much, uh, 
make it their own thing. And thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. And the brain and mind, they have rhythms and patterns. And there are ways that people in the world are trying to, you know, understand the rhythms and patterns of the brain to help, you know, brain trauma patients or people with Parkinson's. And because it is, you know, June and is Alzheimer's Brain Awareness Month, um, I, I want, you know, and I did see some studies are going on out there that there's a company that has produced a product that actually records your dreams now. And it's pretty dead set. And I guess they've done tons of research and studies with this apparatus connected to somebody while they're sleeping. And the person isn't told what it's actually doing. It's just a sleep study. In reality, it was recording their dreams. So they asked the person about if they remembered their dream. And if they did, the you know it was recorded what the dream was and they matched it against what was played out on a screen from the apparatus that was connected to their head or whatever like the sticky pads on their head i thought that was awesome it's like wow you know because that could actually you know really develop the human brain and make us understand all the different um compartmental parts that go into having a human brain and mind you know um francis callens is the director of national institute of health he explains the connectome refers to the exquisitely interconnected network of neurons or nerve cells in your brain um the connectome is pretty much the system of neural pathways in your brain or your nervous system um like the genome and the microme the um, effort to map the connectome and dissect the electrical signals that zap through it to generate your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors has become possible through development of powerful new tools and technologies. And I tried to like pretty much tell you guys about some of those um, technologies. And like I was telling you earlier, as of uh, 2013, neurofeedback has been used in 17 VA military facilities to treat PTSD. And I think that's pretty awesome and good for the government for getting in um, on, you know, the study of neuropathways and neurochemicals because it's important to know those things. And it's important to know about the human brain and habits and to understand that, you know, the things you put in your body affect, you know, your neuroplasticity and it affects your DNA, you know, <laughs> I mean, deficiencies are easily um, made by pretty much not paying attention to, uh, you know, what's going on with your body. You know, we all want to have great things happen to us. We don't want to have bad health. We don't want to get in a bad way, you know. But if we don't understand the deficiencies of our bodies or, you know... (sighs) the things that are going on inside of us, then we aren't going to realize that we're causing ourselves to be sick, you know? And here's a, here's a few mineral deficiencies for you guys. That if you don't know any, I mean, I think this is important. This is some of the important things that we need to know and discuss is potassium, like the lack of potassium in the human body. It causes ab- abdominal bloating and cramps, heart palpitation, nausea, vomiting. It also causes ringing in the ears, feeling of dizziness and constipation. 
Magnesium, dude, magnesium's like one of the most important ones that they now use in nootropics. And if you haven't um, heard of nootropics, you got to check it out. A lot of nootropics use ashwagandha, lion's mane, like different types of mushrooms, pretty much reishi mushroom, um, and many all uh, many other ones. But magnesium is one of the nootropics they use too, because the lack of magnesium in the human body um, as a deficiency actually causes sleeping uh, difficulties. It causes muscle spasms, causes anxiety, depression infertility in some when the cases are really bad it causes headaches it causes fatigue you know and deficiencies um bring on all kinds of different ailments to the um cardiovascular system to the nervous system to the circulatory system many different deficiencies um cause many different problems in your body that causes just haywire and most people don't even realize they're causing them themselves um calcium deficiencies in the human body causes brittle nails Dry skin, high blood pressure, tooth decay, tingling in the fingers, chronic itching, and it causes you to be lethargic with uh, no calcium. So get out there and drink your milk, kids. Get that milk mustache, you know. <laughs> but you also have people out there making documentaries that, you know, the milk industry was evil and it was causing people to drink milk and we're the only animal in the world that drinks milk its whole life and... Well, you know, maybe, but maybe it is bad for you, but everything's bad for you anymore. Um, zinc deficiencies in humans causes, um, so the lack of zinc in your body would be like weak immunity, allergies, thinning of hair, acne, rashes, infections, diarrhea. The lack of iodine in your body causes low body temperature, cold hands and feet, weakness, fatigue, um, pale skin, weak nails, swollen or sore tongue. Selenium, which selenium is really important too, it's... I think selenium actually is a nootropic as well. It causes a slow metabolism, hair loss, slow wound healing. It could cause infertility as well, memory problems, and a low immune system. So deficiencies are important to understand, and it's important to get on top of them before you know <laughs> your body gets out of control. And I, I hope that you guys are enjoying this podcast. And we're about to do... The part two of William James's The Principles of Psychology. Thank you all for tuning in and listening. I do appreciate you very much. You have to learn to treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping. A tiny subtle change is what starts a great shift. Everybody's looking for a revelation. Everybody wants a breakthrough. But remember... Changing 1% a day for 365 days for one year leads to major change ahead. Then the doors close, new ones open. We have to stop the fear-based lifestyle and enter a more relaxed living arrangement. It's not a lifestyle. Instead of just doing what we need to do, you know, these are things that we all have to learn to do. And sometimes... It, it may take um, every new experience you have, you know, every new experience you have has the potential pretty much to enhance your brain's ability to change because of neuroplasticity and neural pathways. Every time you rest and sleep, your habits, every habit you have, you know, when you learn a new skill, you learn to play music or you sing or you just hum and 
there's a lot of nasty noise around you and you realize your voice is beautiful, that changes the neuroplasticity in your brains. When you meditate on something long enough, that is, you know, it, it changes you. It changes the harmony and frequency inside of your soul, the deepness of your being, the vibrations. This is The Principles of Psychology by William James. This is Chapter 4, Habit. When we look at living creatures from an outward point of view, one of the first things that strikes us is that they are bundles of habits. And wild animals, the usual round of daily behavior seem a necessity implanted at birth. In animals domesticated, and especially in man, it seems to a great extent to be the result of edu- education. The habits to which there is an innate tendency are called instincts. Some of those due to education would, by some most persons, be called acts of reason. And remember, we have learned, or I have done a podcast in the past that talked about domestication. And, you know, three and four-year-olds are the most true human beings on the planet because they never lie. They tell it how it is. And once they hit five and six, you start to see a change because mom and dad has said, yes, no, good boy, bad girl, good girl, bad boy, and made up all these little things. Well, that's the beginning of the domestication of a human being. And moms and dads usually create a judge and a victim role in a child's mind. So then the child puts its true self in the corner and they fight back and forth their whole lives between two people and then whatever it may be, the judge and the victim, it could be a grandma and grandpa and aunt and uncle, whoever it may be, you know, but they put their true selves in the corner. And, you know, if you've ever had your animal sit on your lap and it sigh, like a dog sighs, well, a dog sighs like that because a dog is domesticated, you know, and it's they've done studies where they bred eight generations of foxes. It took eight generations before a fox could be pet and fed by a human being and not the human not be attacked or growled at or anything like that. And, you know, when a human gets domesticated, we know that things aren't always right about the domestication of that human being and many things go away and neural pathways get closed off. The habits of, uh, excuse me, the habits to which there is an tendency are called instincts. Some of those due to the education would by most persons be called acts of reason. It thus appears that habit covers a very large part of life and that one engaged in studying the objective manifestations of mind is bound at the very outset to define clearly just what its limits are. The most, excuse me, the moment one tries to define what habit is, one is led to the fundamental properties of matter, the laws of nature, and nothing but the immutable habits which the different elementary sorts of matter follow in their actions and reactions upon each other. In the organic world, however, the habits are more variable than this. Even instincts vary from one individual to another of a kind and are modified in the same individual as we shall latter see to suit the exigencies of the case.
The habits of an elementary particle of matter cannot change on the principles of the atmospheric philosophy because the particle itself, an unchangeable thing, but those of a compound matter, excuse me, compound mass of matter can change because they are in the last instance due to the structure of the compound. And I'll pause right there and tell you the first law of thermodynamics is energy can either be created or destroyed. And either outward forces or inward tensions can, from one hour to another, turn that structure into something different from what it was. That is, they can do so if the body be plastic enough to maintain its integrity and be not disrupted when its structure yields. The change of structure here spoken of need not involve the outward shape. It may be invisible and molecular as when a bar of iron becomes magnetic or crystalline through the action of certain outward causes or India rubber becomes friable or plaster sets. All these changes are rather slow. The material in question opposes a certain resistance to the modifying cause, which it takes time to overcome, but the gradual yielding whereof often saves the material from being disintegrated altogether. When the structure has yielded, the same inertia becomes a condition of its comparative performance and the new form and the new habits the body then manifests. Plasticity, then in the wide sense of word, means the possession of a structure weak enough to yield to an influence, but strong enough not to yield at one, all at once. And I want to say that a silicone personality is similar to plasticity, which he is talking about here. And a silicone personality is when you eat tons of vegetables that have, that are like shiny vegetables and they have lots of silicone in them. So they, they tend to be people who are energetic, talkative, and kind of rambunctious. <laughs> Each relatively stable phase of equilibrium in such a structure is marked by what we may call a new set of habits. Organic matter, especially nervous tissue, seems endowed with a very extraordinary degree of plasticity of this sort, so that we may without hesitation lay down our first Proposition the following that the phenomena of habit as living beings are due to the plasticity of the organic materials of which their bodies are composed. Kind of makes sense. But the philosophy of habit is thus, in the first instance, a chapter in physics rather than physiologically, if I could talk, <laughs> physiology or psychology that is at bottom a principle in admitting by all good recent writers on the subject and remember what i said about principle in my other podcast you know that's important principles are very important to have in life and principles are very um detrimental to humans becoming better than what they were yesterday i believe and many others do too that's why there's so many book about principles and key principles. They call attention to analogous of acquired habits exhibited by dead matter. Thus, M. Leon 
de Mont, whose essay on habit is perhaps the most philosophical account yet published writes, and this is how it goes. Everyone knows how a garment, after having been worn a certain time, clings to the shape of the body better than when it was new. There has been a change in the tissue, and this change is a new habit of coercion. And this is how DNA works too, and this is how neuroplasticity and also neurochemicals kind of work too right here, if you think about it. A lock works better after being used sometime at the outset more force was required to overcome certain roughness in the mechanism because you know for neurochemicals to react they're transferring a certain type of electrical signal to the other one and it's and it's like and it's called a synopsis you know when they do that and like you know or a synoptic membrane and that's relating to the point at which um, electrical signals pretty much move from one nerve cell to another and synopsis is uh, connect neurons that help transmit information from um, one neuron to the next. And I think that's kind of important to know here because it has to do with what we're kind of reading about. Um, the overcoming of their resistance is a phenomenon of habitutation. It costs less trouble to fold a paper when it has been folded already. So that would be called a score. If it if it's scored first and then folded, it's folded more easily. <laughs> this saving of trouble is due to the essential nature of habit, which brings to ab- about that to re- reproduce the effect. A less amount of the outward cause is required. The sounds of a violin improve by use in the hand of an audible artist because the fibers of the wood at last contrast and contract um, habits of vibration conform to harmonic relations. This is what gives such inestimable value to instruments have, that have belonged to great masters because the wood actually is living and it is forever changing because that's how DNA works. And I do believe that with human bodies, too, and human cells, that once everything's in vibration and harmony, all things and habits are, like, totally improved. Um, it's, this is kind of a great read, you guys. I hope you're enjoying this. The sounds of a violin improve use in the hand of the audible artist because the fibers of the wood at last contract habits of vibration conform to harmonic relations. And I believe that with our voices, so if we're always angry, yelling, and screaming... No one's ever going to believe us as much as we believe ourselves. It goes in our mouth and right back into our ears. This is what gives such inestimable value to instruments that have belonged to great masters. You know, could you imagine that? Jimi Hendrix, you know, owning one of his guitars or owning one of uh, Mozart's uh, instruments or Beethoven's piano. It would be great. You know, you could only imagine what it sounds like. Water is flowing hollows out for itself a channel which grows broader and deeper and after having um, ceased to flow it resumes when it can flow again the path traced by itself before just so the impressions of the outer objects fashioned for themselves in the nervous system more and more appropriate paths and these vital phenomena occur under similar um excitements from without when they have been interrupted a certain time 
Not in the nervous system alone, a scar anywhere in a locus minoris resontis more I have no idea what that means, you guys. I am so sorry. I'm I'm a terrible, terrible author host. I know. I know you can slap me next time, alright? <laughs> uh, let's see what it says. Refers to a body region more vulnerable than others. It's uh this is ancient concept. Interesting. So more liable to be abroad and flame to suffer pain and cold than are the neighboring parts. A sprained ankle, a dislocated arm, are in danger of becoming sprained or dislocated again. Joints have once been attacked by rheumatoid arthritis or gout. Mucous membranes that have been the seat of cancer are with each fresh reoccurrence more prone to a relapse until often the morbid state chronically substitutes itself for the sound one. Let me reread that for a second, sorry. Mucous membranes that have been the seat of cancer are, with each fresh recurrence, more prone to a relapse until often the morbid state chronically substitutes itself for the sound one. And if we ascend to the nervous system, we find how... Many so-called functional diseases seem to keep themselves going simply because they happen to have once begun and how the forcible cutting short by medicine of a few attack or excuse me few attacks is often sufficient to enable the physiological forces to get possession of the field again and to bring the organs back to functions of health and I think that was important right there i should have included that part of the deficiencies right there but i had told you about some you know human deficiencies and the lack of those vitamins in your body earlier and i think that's important to kind of you know you know let you know about that right now right here you know epilepsies um neuralgias um convulsive affections of various sorts insomnias are so many cases in point and to take what are more obviously habits uh the success with which a weaning treatment can often be applied to the victims of unhealthy indulgence of passion or of mere complaining or um dispositions show us how much the morbid manifestations themselves were due to the mere inertia of the nervous organs when once launched on a false career. Yeah, because, I mean, I think that goes for anything. You, I mean, think about it. A baby comes into the world addicted to, you know, crack cocaine or heroin. That's what it's talking about right there, pretty much, uh, you know. Think about it. That's uh pretty that's pretty interesting. Can we uh now form a notion of what the inward physical changes may be like in organs whose habits have thus struck into new paths? In other words, can we say just what mechanical facts the expression's change of habit covers when it is applied to a nervous system? Certainly we cannot in any way like a minute or definite way, but our usual scientific custom of interpreting hidden molecular events after 
the analogy of visible massive ones enables us to frame easily an abstract and general scheme of processes which the physical changes in question may be like. And when once the possibility of some kind of mechanical interpretation is established, mechanical science in her present mode will not hesitate to set her brand of uh, ownership upon the matter, uh, feeling sure that it is only a question of time when the exact mechanical explanation of the case shall be found out. And I think that is a very interesting uh, paragraph right there. If habits are due to the plasticity or neuroplasticity of materials to outward agents, like I told you, see, this was written long, long ago, over 100 years ago. And he's talking about plasticity then. So neuroplasticity isn't something new, but neural pathways, neuroplasticities, nerve, the nervous system, and all the way these things work have been quite um, known for a long time because people have been dissecting bodies forever, trying to figure out ways to heal people, figuring out, you know, did spirits have a hold of this person? Was there something inside of them that this spirit had? You know, and they they had to decipher between you know, the spirit world and the medical world and figure out a moral way to go about it, which that's what hypocrites did in 400 BC. He was pretty much the founding father of the way the physician treats a patient in today's world. You know, it's about the care and the pretty much the empathy and just the courageousness to be there to hold somebody's hand that's not doing well and to walk you through it and to make you understand that, you know, maybe not everything's going to be okay. But thank you guys for listening. And we are getting back to part. This is volume two, The Principles of Psychology by William James. Not to mechanical pressures, not to thermal changes, not to any of the forces to which all the organs of our body are exposed for nature has carefully shut up our brain and spinal cord in bony boxes where no influences of this sort can get at them she has floated them in fluid so that only the severest shock can give them a concussion and blanketed and wrapped them about in an altogether exceptional way the only impression that can be made upon them are through the blood on the one hand and through the sensory nerve roots on the other and it is to the infinitely inundated currents that pour in through these latter channels that the hemispherical cortex shows itself to be so particularly susceptible I do want to share with you guys that you know this kind of reminds me of like you know when people have a stroke or you know, I know it's Alzheimer's Brain Awareness Month, but, you know, I want to tell you that also a little bit about, you know, strokes and how, because he's like, you know, right here, you know, the severest shocks can give them a concussion. You know, when he said that, I was like, well, you know, when someone has a uh, pretty much a uh, cerebrular stroke, you know, which is part of the brain that really coordinates all the sensory input from your limbs, it tells you, you know, that you are... You know, it pretty much tells you how to fine-tune uh, those motor skills, functions. If you have a bad cerebellum, everything is just 
a toxic or, you know, pretty much an impaired coordination or, you know, from pretty much like a like brain damage. Like that um, you even see eye movements that are odd because you have all of the motor nerves from the eye go right back to the part of the brain. So the, uh, the cerebellum interacts with everything. But what's interesting is to try to fix that. You know, um, a gentleman named Dr. Lewis Clark, uh, he is trying to figure out the neurotransmission circuits from the cerebellum to different parts of the brain. And playing around with those different neurotransmitters is uh, really interesting to him because... Um, you can fix things just by juggling pretty much neurotransmitters. And there are all kinds of different neurochemicals, Dr. Clark says, that you can play with to get you know a circuit to work right. And that's what's going on um, pretty much in a lot of different places in the world. And, you know, it's like uh, once they have that breakthrough, I, th- I find that a lot of different things are going to change, you know, for the uh, mechanical pressures, you know, and the the thermal changes, you know, because I had told you earlier about, you know, outcome change, process change, stuff like that. So I I believe that all these things work together, you know, in the spinal cord and, um, you know, they're not, you know, your spinal cord and your brain just shut up in a box. You know, those are like the most important parts of your whole body system to me. The only way impressions that can be made upon them are through the blood on one hand and through sensory nerve roots. That's what William James says in this book right here. And that's true till still to this day. I had actually seen a video on YouTube where they were giving a, a stroke patient a shot in the neck and it was like pretty much taking away all the symptoms of the stroke. I don't know how true that video was, but it was interesting. The currents once once in must find a way out. And getting out, they leave their traces and paths which they take. The only thing they can do, in short, is to deepen old paths or to make new ones. And the whole plasticity of the brain sums itself up into two words. When we call it an organ in which currents pouring in from the sense organs make what with extreme facility paths which do not easily disappear for of course a simple habit like every other nervous event the habit of snuffling for example or of putting one's hand into one's pocket or of biting one's nails is mechanically nothing but a reflex discharge or its atomical substructure must be a pathway in the system there must be a substratum in the path of the system. The most complex habits, as we shall presently see more fully, are from the same point of view. Nothing but concentrated discharges in the nervous centers due to the presence there of systems of reflex paths so organized as to wake each other up successively with impressions produced by one muscular contraction serving as a simultaneous to provoke the next until a final impression inhibits the process and closes the chain. So it's pretty much like your brain sends out an input signal and then the output is the movement. The only difficult mechanical problem is to explain the formation 
de novo of simple reflex or path in a pre-existing nervous system. Here, as in so many other cases, it is only the premiere for the entire nervous system is nothing but a system of paths between a sensoratory tumus a quo and a muscular glander or other terminals a path once traversed by a nervous current might be expected to follow the law of most of the paths we know and to be scoped out and made more preamble than before. And this ought to be repeated with each new passage of the current. Whatever obstructions may have kept it at first from being a path should then little by little and more and more be swept out of the way. Like he said in the beginning about the river and the current making, you know, the pathway it dries up but then later on it rains and it comes back until at least it might become a natural drainage channel this is natural drainage excuse me this is a natural drainage channel this is what happens where either solids or liquids pass over a path there seems no reason why it should not happen where the thing that passes is a mere wave of rearrangement and matter that does not displace itself but merely changes chemically or turns itself round in place or vibrates across the line and i do want to say that that also describes how scientists and um you know herbologists people mycelius they say that pretty much hallucinogenic mushrooms have this effect on the human brain that there's these grooves inside your brain. And when you feel around in your brain, you feel the grooves. And when you take like syllabus mushroom or hallucinogenic mushrooms in a micro dosing way, not like you don't take it to actually hallucinate, you take it under a doctor's or a physician's care. And it pretty much takes like snow, packs it on all the stress all the anger because like when you get angry it it shifts the hemispheres of your brain against each other and they say that that sometimes causes strokes and stuff but anyways um once you take like um the mushroom or whatever the magic mushroom it's supposed to be like snow getting packed on the grooves of your brain and it replaces traumatic situation and it helps you move forward in recovery and that's why they're trying to push like um pretty much psychedelics being legal for treatment and stuff all over the United States at this point. I believe that California, they are passing it or they're trying to. The most plausible views of the nerve current make it out to be the passage of some such wave of arrangement at this. If only a part of the matter of the path were to rearrange itself, the neighboring parts remaining inert, it is easy to see how their inertness might oppose a friction which it would take many waves of rearrangement to break down and overcome. If we call the path itself the organ and the wave of arrangement the function, then it is obvious a case for repeating the celebrated French formula of laissez-fonction fonte l'onge. So nothing is easier than to imagine how when a current once has traversed a path, it should traverse more rapidly still a second time. But what made it ever traverse it the first time? In answering this question, we can only fall back on our general conception of a nerve system as a mass of matter whose parts constantly 
kept in state of different tension are as as uh, constantly tending to equalize their states. And that's what neurochemicals are. Those are neurochemicals um, relaying um, small voltages of electricity to one another to make an arm movement or to have a reoccurring memory over and over and over. And I think it's important that they're doing this because we're going to understand why people become so stressed out that they you know, develop bipolarism or people get so stressed out that they have ADHD or ADD and all these other different, um, um, sensory issues. Thank you guys for listening to the only you podcast. And this is the second volume of the principles of psychology by Mr. William James. And thank you for tuning in. I do appreciate you for following me and thank you for sharing me. But as a given point of the system, maybe long actually or potentially to many different paths and as the play of nutrition is subject to accidental changes blocks may from time to time occur and make currents shoot through um outward lines such an unwanted line would be a new created path which if traversed repeatedly would become the beginning of a new reflex arc Okay, so he's kind of basing this off of how, like, a phase, an arc, and that has to do with kind of like a physics makeup. And I see what he's kind of saying here. Um, All this is vague to the last degree and amounts to little more than saying that a new path may be formed by the sort of chances that and nervous material are likely to occur. But vague as it is... It is really the last word of our wisdom and the matter. It must be noticed that the growth of structural modification in living matter may be more rapid than in any lifeless mass because the incessant uh, nutritive renovation of which the living matter is the seat tends often to collaborate and fix the impressed modification rather than to counteract it by renewing the original constitution of the tissue that has been impressed so it's saying that you know you can actually put things in your mouth in your diet that would actually heal you as opposed to you know continuing on the path of destruction and not taking the nutrients your body needs to not have you know all those different kind of ailments that you're having thus we notice after exercising our muscles or our brain in a new way that we do so no longer at that time, but after a day or two of rest, when we resume the dis- discipline, our increase in skill not seldom surprises us. I have often noticed this in learning a tune, and it has led a German author to say that we learn to swim during the winter and to skate during the summer. Think about it, though. You think about skating all summer long so you're building up to the winter when you actually get to do it you know and most champions they'll tell you like um arnold schwarzenegger he he you can probably find videos out there of him when he said that you know he was going to be he was up for mr olympian and his dad died his mom called him and told him hey you know your dad died you know what he told his mom mom i'm a champion I can't be bothered with this right now. Click. And he hung up. And he became Mr. Olympian the next day because he was so dead set focused on being a champion. And 
you know, it kind of correlates with this right here, you know. You, you know, the, the German author to say that we learn to swim during the winter and skate during the summer. You know, champions plan way in advance for whatever's coming up, and that's how they win. You know, Conor McGregor didn't win all those fights because he didn't plan ahead. He was the greatest planner of ever because he was poor. You 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 hold a poor person down long enough, and they find a way in, dude, they're going to fight and become the craziest you've ever seen because they've been without for so long, and that's just how it works, you know. Muhammad Ali, he also said, you know, before I ever fought anybody, I already won the fight in my mind when I was training. He's like, when I was laying in bed at night, I wasn't losing sleep. I was sleeping so hard because in my brain, I already won that fight. And it played out every single time and every single fight, just like the dream. It is a matter of universe experience that every kind of training for special aptitude is both far more effective and leaves a more permanent impress when exerted on the growing organism than when brought to bear on the adult. The effect of such training is shown in the tendency of the organ to grow to the mode in which it is habitually exercised, as is evidenced by the increased size and power of particular sets of muscles and the extraordinary flexibility of joints, which are acquired by such, excuse me, yeah, acquired by such as have been Early exercised in gymnastic gymnastics performances, there is no part of the organism of man in which the reconstructive activity is so great during the whole period of life as it is in the ganglionic substance of the brain. This is indicated by the numerous supply of blood which it receives. It is moreover a fact of great significance that the nerve substance and specifically uh excuse me spe yeah specifically distinguished by its reparative power for while injuries of other tissues such as the mo molecular kind or muscular kind which are distinguished by the specialty of their structure and endowments are repaired by substances of a lower and less specialized type those of nerve sub nerve substance are repaired by a complete reproduction of the normal tissue, as is evidenced in the sensibility of the newly forming skin, which is closing over an open wound, or in the recovery of the sensib sensibly, excuse me, sensibility <laughs> of a piece of transplanted skin, which has for a time been rendered insensible by the complete interruption of the continuity of its nerves the most remarkable example of this reproduction however is afford, afforded by the results of a specialist named m brown squards experiments upon the glandular restoration of the functional activity of the spinal cord after its complete division whoa which takes place in a way that indicates rather a reproduction of the whole or the lower part of the cord and of the nerves preceding it than a mere reunion of divided surfaces. This production 
is but a special manifestation of the reconstructive change which is always taking place in the nervous system, it being not less obvious to the eye of reason that the waste occasioned by its functional activities must be constantly repaired by the production of new tissue than it is to the eye of sense that such reparation supplies an actual loss of substance by disease or injury. Now, in this constant and active reconstruction of the nervous system, we recognize a most marked conformity to the general plan manifested in the nutrition of the organism as a whole. For in the first time, it is obvious that there is a tendency to the production of a determinate type of structure, which type is often not merely that of the species but some special modification of it which characterize one or both of the pregenerators like SARS-2 then you know 20 years later COVID-19 but this type of this type is particularly liable to modification during the early period of its life in which the functional activity of the nervous system and particularly of the brain is extraordinarily great and the reconstructive process proportionally active and this modifiably expresses itself in the formation of the me- mechanism by which those secondary automatic modes of movement come to be established which in man take the place of those that are congenial in most of the animals beneath him and those modes of sense perception come to be acquired which are elsewhere clearly instinctive for there can be no reasonable doubt that in both cases a nervous mechanism is developed in the course of this self-education corresponding with that which the lower animals inherit from their parents. The plan of that rebuilding process, which is necessary to maintain the integrity of the organism generally and which goes on with particular active in this portion of it, is thus being incessantly modified and in this manner all that proportion excuse me, all that portion of it which ministers to the external life of sense and motion that is shared by man with the animal kingdom at large becomes as at, excuse me, it becomes at adult age the expression of the habits which the individual has acquired during the period of growth and development. Of these habits, some are common to the race generally, while others are particularly the individual, those of the former kind, such as walking erect, being universally acquired, save where physical inability pre, pre, uh, prevents, if I could speak, sorry, while for the latter a special training is needed, which is usually more effective the earlier it is begun, as is remarkably seen in the case of such feats of dexterity as required a conjoint education of the perceptive and of the motor powers. And when thus developed during the period of growth, so as to have become a part of the constitution of the adult, the acquired mechanism is henceforth maintained in the ordinary course of the nutritive operation so as to be ready for use when called upon, even after long inaction. And that's why we need to maintain certain... Uh, minerals and vitamins in our body is because they actually help us to retain long-term memories and 
um, short-term memories. because And that's what nootropics do. So if you haven't ever heard of nootropics, look it up. If you're getting older in age and deteriorating a little bit more, check out some nootropics. They sell them at Walmart. And I use them every day, and I have for the last few months. And, man, I love them. They make me focus more. They make me read better. And hopefully they might help you guys out, too, that are having some kind of maybe um, – you know, memory recalling problems or, you know, focus issues, inability to sleep, you know, things like that. Check it out. They're out there. And thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. And this is the month of June. This is uh, all brain, uh, excuse me, if I could talk again, Alzheimer's Brain Awareness Month. And we're doing William James in the month of June, and this is the second volume of the Principles of Psychology. And I do appreciate everybody for listening, and sorry for all the excuse yous and misreads. I apologize, but I don't edit it. I just do it live, and hopefully you appreciate it, because I think it's kind of a little bit funner to really be yourself. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. Your gut is deeply connected to your mind. And I do want to say that we've covered a lot of stuff today. William James is a great author, great philosopher, you know, and a lot of us suffer from fear from childhood upbringings, you know, watching people around us at our birthday parties with beer in their hands or drinking and smoking and all these negative situations that nobody should ever have to deal with. You know, a lot of us deal with that. So, you know, and I want you to know that sometimes the reason, you know, we hold back in conversation is fear of being judged by our peers and you know it's the fear of judgment and we need to realize that we wouldn't feel a certain way if we you know truly hadn't already been judging ourselves and we put a lot of emphasis on how other people are and we put less emphasis emphasis on the way we are and it, you know it's, it's it's okay to feel something and not act upon it it's okay to think something and not act upon it, you know, but your gut is deeply connected to your mind. So it's deeply connected to neurotransmission, neurotransmitters, neuropathways, synopsis, you know, the synoptic membrane. And I believe that, you know, you know um, healing and sickness start in our stomachs. And I do believe that, you know, taking probiotics, which is another nootropic that I had told you about earlier. I actually drink kombucha, and I've been drinking that for over 10 years now. I have an aunt. She actually makes her own kombucha. I bought her a book not long ago. Hopefully, she's out there using it. If you're listening, you better be. I'm coming over soon. I want to try some. <laughs> um, I do want to say that our feelings, you know, don't dictate and don't decide things in our life. You know, your feelings and your emotions aren't how we should base our decisions you know and feelings don't always tell us the correct decisions to make the correct decisions actually create the right feelings and the correct feelings you know and nobody can tell you how to feel and nobody is in charge of your feelings so when you're when you're arguing with your significant other and you're like well you made me feel this way or you did this it's all your fault and that you're you're the reason why I'm acting like this or whatever it may be. In reality, you're in control of those emotions and those feelings. And feelings and, emo- and emotions are two different things, you know. And those are things that you have to create principles about in your life and live by and be proud of and, you know, realize that the correct decisions create the correct feelings. And feelings are not intended to guide you your whole life and 
you got to know that that's what your mind is for. Your mind is there to guide you. And, you know, when you have bad thoughts, more if you have more bad going in than good, you know, obviously it's going to have eruptable consequences on your neural pathways, your neurotransmissions, your behaviors, then it's going to show through in your behavior. It's going to show through in your principles and how you're delivering yourself to society and how pretty much all these things are coming forth in odd ways that you have to nip in the bud and become aware of. And, you know, invasive thoughts uh, make you feel pretty much stuck or messed up. You know, when you're thinking evasively, you're like, you know, I'm never going to make it. Oh, if I wanted to start my own business, that's never going to get off the ground. I'm my, my dad didn't do it. So I can't do it, you know, or, Oh, my dad was this away. Or so now, I, Oh, my mom did this, this away. So that's the way I have to do it. Or she was this way. That's the way I have to be. And, I mean, I understand where that comes from because not everything happens with you. And there's another book out there by an author where, you know, he, it's, I think it's called, uh, it didn't start with you. And it talks about how, you know, gener- generational curses come about, you know, and how, you know, when there's nasty incestual things going on inside of families, that that stuff trickles down to pretty much somebody doing something very ignorant later on in your family's generation. It was a really interesting read. You know, you'll have to check it out yourselves. But, you know, invasive thoughts are, you know, you feeling stuck or messed up. But intuitive thoughts, you know, that comes from the inside of you. And that's your best self. And that's when we have the pretty much, when we have intuitive thoughts, that's when our neuroplasticity really takes off and really sparks new transformation. And you can transform the human mind in the darkest places. In the midst of prison, you can create the greatest paradise in your mind. These things are possible. And many people who have been in situations where they never thought they were going to get out have told stories, you know, of the bitter end and how it was and how peaceful it was and how they were afraid for so long. And then all of a sudden, you know, things just worked out that their neuroplasticity you know, pretty much sped all the way up into that point of, hey, this is the end. It's time to be at peace with things and close doors and open doors that you got to just let that go at that point. And you move forward because, you know, neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to form and recognize synoptic connections. And I told you earlier in the podcast about the synoptic membrane and how it's, you know, it's pretty much the electrical transmission or neurotransmission of electrical signals to other cells or the transmission of neurochemicals through electrical signals and uh, especially in the response to learning or experiencing or you know pretty much you can neuroplasticity is great when uh, following up with a brain injury because neuroplasticity really takes off because it tries to heal itself so fast and quick and neuroplasticity offers real hope to everyone from pretty much stroke victims to people with dyslexia autism many different people on the sensory spectrum and you know in simple terms neuroplasticity is the ability of the nervous system to change its ability in response to pretty much intra- in- intrinsic or extrinsic which um 
extrinsic is uh, not part of the essential nature of someone or something. And that's the extrinsic stimuli by recognizing its structure functions or connections after, you know, a strike or a stroke or a brain injury. Sorry guys. Um, and I think that's some pretty interesting stuff because, you know, the brain is so awesome, you know, and the cerebellum is awesome. The amygdala is amazing. You know, the premedial lobes, you know, your all the all the, the the pituitary gland, your god gland, you know, your your penal gland. That's your penal gland, not your pituitary gland. Sorry, but neurotransmitters evoke um, postsynaptic electrical responses by binding to membranes of a diverse group of proteins called neurotransmitters. So, you know, I mean, neurotransmitters neurotransmitters is a part of neuroplasticity. And it's on the pathways, which are neural pathways in your brain that, you know, use neurochemicals to allow electrical information to be passed from cell to cell, which is an input. And the output is some kind of function. You had an itch. It, um, your skin was dehydrated in that area. It sent an electrical signal to your brain through your nervous system or your neural pathway, and that's how that works. So thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast, and I really do hope that I'm reaching somebody out there, and hopefully you're enjoying these books that I'm doing. Um, thank you guys very much. It's June, summertime. Hope you're having a good time out there. There's many different changes coming up in um, the world with brain and how technology is being used to um, record your dreams and, you know, 40 hertz here affects Alzheimer's there and how they're doing all these different um, tests on mice to help humans and children and there's a lot going on out there and we need to be aware of it. And hopefully I'm passing some great information on to you. And hopefully you guys are really, um, getting to some, or actually, actually reaching some breakthroughs here and, you know, breakthroughs don't happen by pretty, by spot time. They're not spontaneous, you know, breakthroughs, um, are pretty much a tipping point in your life. And I do want you to know that revelations occur when ideas or setting in your basement of your mind and you finally wake up and get enough attention in your mind to dominate your thoughts and do something about, you know, the revelation. And then the breakthrough happens. The aha moment. The moment your habits have shown through long enough that they are instinctive. A mind-blowing singular breakthrough is not what changes your life. It's that 1% that every single day choosing to be different than what you were yesterday, every single moment is changing you to be who you are. And I do want to say that the person you are is who you are alone behind closed doors. And it's what you're thinking about the most behind those closed doors. The integrity of your life is who you really are. It isn't who you are when you're smiling and waving. It's who you are when you're on your knees at night praying for your loved ones. 
It's who you are at night exercising by your bed because you know that you're having health issues and you want to change it. You want to turn it around. You want to get better. You know, it's the person at nighttime laying there in the dark worried, am I going to have the money to get the bills out this week? It's the mom laying there praying that her son comes home after a night of drinking when he's been down and out because his dad passed away last week. You know, it's the woman laying there that's gotten up with her old man every night because he's had cancer for four years and he's been fighting for his life ever since and he hasn't been back to work and they don't have no insurance. They don't know what they're going to do, you know. That's who you really are is when you're laying there in the dark by yourself and your habits are raining through your brain all the different situations negative upbringing negative self-talk all the derogatory things and all the nasty chemicals that you're putting in your body that's giving you chemical depressions that you're not even aware of that's the person you are and remember that person is loved there's 15 people out there that loves every single person in the world and there's six people out there that we could talk to that knows every single person that we know and that's all over the world they say that there's six people all over the world that we could run into that knows somebody that we know and that's how small the world is who are you inside of that small world what is your integrity like what kind of habits are you forming what kind of psychological principles are you developing to change your kids' future what kind of things are you setting in motion to get you in a new job what kind of things are you setting in motion to give you a new outlook on life because you know your husband has passed away and that he actually killed himself and now you don't know what to do with yourself and you're a basket case you can't even get up in the morning to dust yourself off pick yourself up take a step and repeat you know you you it's so hard to do you know you need the morning boost you need to go over there and see um mr scott you know he, he has a great podcast too check it out the morning boost i love that guy um scott smith is his name i believe but you know who we are behind closed doors in a dark room the thoughts that you're processing the most over and over and over and you're trying to act like you ain't even thinking about that and it's like yeah you are and that's who you really are inside but that's the person you need to cultivate quit messing up with people quit bringing people into your life that ain't there to help you with the principles of psychology, that don't want you to realize that, hey, if you read these books, you're going to be different. You're going to find a way and a breakthrough and a revelation. It's going to come down the pipeline as soon as you start your thinking because the more seeds of greatness that you plant, the better reap of a harvest you will sow. And I'm telling you, I've done it. And it takes putting pen to paper. And I, like I always say in my other podcasts, only the stupidest people write stuff down because then they never forget. And if you can remember to go back and read your writings and check up on your journal each month that you're journaling, you know, I got an idea book next to my bed. When I have an idea, I write it down. If it's for a new business, if it's for a new invention, boom, I'm writing it down. I'm sketching it. I don't care if it's two, three, four, five in the morning. I'm writing it down because this is the only life I have to live. And I am but a speck of dust on this earth of seven billion people. But to some, I am this earth. I am a part of everything. I am the energy they needed to get that 
breath in to get that foot up out of that bed, put their feet flat on the ground, stand firm, raise your shoulders back and put your chin to the sky and walk as though you got purpose in this life. Make that bed when you get up to set in motion that it's going to be a great day and you're going to get a lot of things done. And you know, there's only one person out there that can do that and that's you. And if you were helping someone or trying to help someone that's struggling with this, because I've seen friends go through it, I've seen drug addicts go through it, I've seen drunks crawling, slobbering on the floor go through it. The person you are behind closed doors at night is your integrity of a person. Open that door, close that door. Whatever it may be to get you to where you need to be. And that's how it has to be. And you need to see that you are enough. And no one's ever coming to save you. Your habits and the habitual movements of your body, the things you think about the most will affect you long, long after you're gone. And the things that you leave here and teach here is what will affect you the most when you're gone. People ain't going to forget you if you're listening to this for a long time. There's going to be people that remember you for quite a long time. But... How did you affect them? How did you, like Mother Teresa said, I can do but one thing in this life, but cast my stone upon the water and hope that my ripples reach someone. Thank you guys for listening.